Listen, while you turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3, um, I want you to think about what comes to your mind when I say the word substitute. Uh, if you're like me, um, growing up in school, you might have thought about substitutes a little bit like this guy here. Uh, you walk in, you see it's a substitute, and you just think, yes, this is going to be an easier day. It's not going to be the normal, you know, the normal school day. I was one who loved change and loved things to be a little bit different. Um, but I did learn going through school, there's all different kinds of subs, right? Um, there are some subs that are just fun. They come in and their, their mentality is, they're not really paying me enough to really advance education, so I'm just going to make this fun and easy for myself and the kids. Uh, and so they just come in with, with that mentality. Uh, some subs are super easy to sidetrack. And there's always someone in a class that's trying to get the teacher off track by asking more and more questions. And somehow, you know, this is more entertaining than getting getting the work done, right? Um, there are some lazy subs. Anyone have a lazy sub before? I think, yeah, this is the person just walks in, they're like, here, watch this. And they sit down and read the newspaper, or they just read, you know, just read. Well, read what? Just read. You know, that's the lazy sub. He just wants to kind of come in and do that. We also have the boring sub, right? That's the one who comes in. There's the mean sub. Um, uh, there's all kinds of subs. Uh, I want to I want to raise your view of subs today for a second, um, because we're going to talk about we're going to talk about a substitute um, who who didn't who didn't substitute for another teacher. Rather, he was a teacher who came to be the substitute for everyone, for students, the good ones and the bad students, for teachers, for the principals, and even for the dropouts. Right? That's the kind of sub. We're going to talk about today. So I want you to think a little bit different about a substitute today. Galatians chapter 3 is where we're at. And this morning, um, I've called the message this, Cursing, Blessing, and Christmas. Now, I know you weren't planning on coming to church today thinking about these three things, especially with mice on a wheel. Uh, not the cute Christmas mice that peek out of a stocking that you want to snuggle, but kind of different different mice here. Um, but I'm going to bring this all together right here in a few short verses of Galatians, and you'll kind of see what it's talking about. This passage, this short passage of Scripture, is a little bit complex with its language and its ideas, but it's just so foundational to what it is that we as Christians have and who we are. This one passage is going to point essentially to two ways of living. Paul's been on this for a while now. One path promises life to the doer. The other path promises life to the believer. Okay, So watch for that. One promises life to the doer. One promises life to the believer. Galatians chapter 3, we're just taking it from verses 10 to 14. Follow along with me. It says this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that right now, 
you would draw us into yourself. I pray that we would receive, have ears to hear and eyes to see the message you have for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're present in this place. We pray that through your power we would have eyes that would be illuminated to what you want to say to us this morning in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now if you are here and you're, um, you're sincerely wanting to learn more and go deeper into God's word, um, I've got a, a theological phrase this morning for you. You may have heard of it before, but it may be a little fuzzy. Maybe you just want to impress your out-of-town Thanksgiving guests. Uh, same term kind of would apply to that. It would, it would help you out with that. Here it is, okay? The theological term, if you were kind of looking for what we're talking about, is this. Penal substitutionary atonement, okay? Now, if you're government or military, you're going to break that down, right? What are you going to call this? PSA, right? You're just like, that's PSA, because you've got to shorten that thing down. Um, so, so this phrase um, asks these kinds of questions. Maybe you've asked these same kinds of questions. Did Jesus have to die? What did his death accomplish? Does this even concern me? This passage is one of many passages that speak to this. And, and drive into, why does this church have a cross hanging in the middle? I was just sitting in the back, by the way, and remembering why we left the cross right here. If you sit right back here in the middle, then this cross is going to be in the way of everything here. You can't even quite see the words to the songs we're singing. And a part of why we left the cross in here is this. Let's not get so comfortable that the cross somehow fades um, out of view. Let's leave it front and center and actually almost like filter everything we see through this, this act of Jesus on the cross and the fact that it's empty. So that's why we have this cross sitting here like this. Uh, by way of review, uh, last week, if you were with us, you remember some name calling. Pastor Paul calling his congregation foolish, saying that they were bewitched. Remember what he was doing? He was driving home this premise that God saves and sanctifies or grows sinners through faith and not human effort. Remember that? He says, don't start off in faith and then think you're going to finish with human effort. It's faith through and through, so keep at it. And he's building on the logic of that premise by using more scripture here. So he's going to, he's going to talk about a lot more scripture. In fact, if you have Bibles that notate this, you'll see that what Paul's doing here is he's actually quoting from a couple of different places in the Old Testament. Now, Paul does something here that uh, maybe you have friends or maybe you're the friend that does this, but he basically puts on his Captain Obvious hat for a moment. You have a friend that's like got Captain Obvious hat, he puts on all the time, and you're like, thank you. Uh, here's what he says, okay? Here's what he says in this passage. No one keeps all of the rules all of the time. That's verse 11. That's what he's saying. Now, you say this on the streets uh, just to the average person, and here's what they say. Duh. We prayed with a bunch of people who are homeless in San Francisco and really, really hungry. Uh, when was that? A week ago. You ask if you can pray for them. 99% say, yeah. Do you, you know, do you have any prayer needs? I don't think I've ever had someone go, no, I'm good. They just go, of course I do. I had one guy, I always ask a follow-up question. Well, what can I pray for you about? And he goes, let's just leave it open-ended. I'm like, that's good. I'm good with that. God knows anyways way better than what I need to know about. You say this on the streets and people say, duh. But get this. If you get kind of a room full of community leaders and you make this same kind of a statement, 
what you might get is a response something more like this. Well, I beg your pardon, sir. That's if you're in England like 100 years ago. But you might get something like that. I don't know what it would be quite here. But basically, you might get people that get their feathers ruffled a little bit and say, well, I, what are you accusing me? And they, they, get a little bit, uh, they get a little bit nervous about that statement. But here's the reality. If you dress up your language, it doesn't change the truth that we all know this to be true. No one keeps all the rules all the time. If you dress up your, your outward appearance and, and you're dressed as a fashionable gentleman or whatever it might be. Again, I'm stuck in the old British ways. I'm not sure why. Um, even if you dress up the outside, we still know it's true that no one keeps all of the rules all the time. Paul is just stating the obvious. He's just saying something that everyone knows, even if in certain settings and gatherings and amongst certain company, we might not be as free to admit it. Here's, here's a little bit of what he's saying. Now, he's been building on this for a while now. But, um, but I have a chain here. And, and, um, and essentially, what Paul is saying is this. He's saying the law is a little bit like this chain. Now, some of you might be willing um, to trust this chain and have me pull you up off of the ground. Some of you might be willing um, to take this chain and attach it to a carabiner that's locked into the face of Half Dome and dangle from Half Dome from it. But here's the reality that we know about any chain. If one link is broken, then what we call with this chain is we say it's broken. It's a broken chain, right? Now, if you're dangling from Half Dome, what's the result of one broken link of this chain? Certain death. Right? I mean, if I'm pulling you up by this chain and you fall, it's a bruised bum and a little bit of a bruised ego, but not that big of a deal, right? But if you're depending on this chain for your very life, you're resting in it for your very life, then if one link is bad, certain death. Now, the buddy that loaned you this chain might say as you're falling down, but all the other ones are really solid. Do you care about that at that point? Say no. You don't. Because it just took one link of this chain and you're dead. Listen to what James says. James chapter 2 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become a lawbreaker and is accountable for it all. So to have a chain with one broken link, we would look at that and say that's a broken chain. To break one tiny part of the law is to become, by definition, a lawbreaker. And if you're depending on law for your life, for your salvation, for your rescue, then here's what it means. Certain death. And Paul's been driving this home for a couple of chapters now. Does this theme sound familiar? I mean, Paul's really beating on this. Because we tend to keep veering back into a mode of law and being good enough. Now, I realize that I'm preaching to people who are at church. And so probably you're here um, and, and maybe, maybe you think of yourself in, in a different way than others. And, and there's some reality to some of that. But as your pastor, I have a job to do. My job is this. It's to not let us be off the hook 
when it comes to sin. A lot of us, when we would say, what is sin? It, it might come out of our mouths as something like this. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't lust. Don't be greedy. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. I mean, those are some of the Ten Commandments, right? Is that true about sin? Yeah, that is true about sin. But a lot of times what we have in our mindset is don't do a bunch of the really, really bad things. And here's what that can set up. It can set up a mindset that says this. On most days, I'm doing pretty good. I'm not doing some of those things. And so I'm, now sure, I slip up and struggle once in a while, but I'm an upwardly mobile sinner. So what happens is we can start to almost dress ourselves up, put on a British accent and say, well, I beg your pardon, when it comes to saying that no one keeps all the rules all the time because we're starting to trick our mind into thinking, but I'm getting pretty close. So here's my job as your pastor this morning is to kind of, is to kind of peel that back and say this, that when God's light kind of floods in on the situation, he reveals such a more robust definition of what sin is. He peels it back and says, it is that, and it's that deep-seated tendency that you have and that I have to make me the center of the universe instead of God. And no one can, 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 um, can live up to all these laws. And, and, and when you, when you put all of them together and you're looking at it and saying, well, well, what does it mean to, to obey them all anyways? Listen to what Jesus did by just kind of boiling everything down to this. Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Any time that we are not doing that, it's sin. John Stott's a famous theologian. He says this, the essence of sin is substituting himself, is man substituting himself for God. So do you see that way more than just avoiding the bad behavior, that creates an us and them. Those of us who don't run to those really bad things and those who do. And these over here are okay in their works, and these over here clearly are condemned by the law. But what I want to do is just keep peeling it back to say, no, 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 it's way more pervasive than that. You and I all have this inner kindergartner where we want the world to be about us. Let me throw a couple of them out to you. I want to be noticed. I want to be affirmed, to be valued. I want to be in control. I want to be comfy. I want to be successful. I want to be worshipped. Now, none of us would say at the very end, I want to be worshipped. No one's going around saying that. What an egomaniac. But when you start putting these other pieces in, I know I hit you on one of those. And there's a whole lot more I want to is going on. That's the inner kindergartner, right? Just crying out. And we saw it all weekend long in us if we had eyes to see that. We're not just casual weekend hobbyists at this. We're really, really, really devoted to self. Now, I don't know if anyone has ever seen an iceberg from above, but an iceberg from above, that picture in the upper right-hand corner, that's a picture of sin. An iceberg, scientists tell us, basically have roughly 12% of 
of its mass showing above the surface. 12%. So what a fool's errand it would be if that's, if that represents sin. What a fool's errand it would be to chip away your whole life at that 12%, that proverbial tip of the iceberg, and never deal with the mountain of ice that's below the surface. Do you see how easy it is to just, to just kind of manage up top and compare ourselves to other icebergs? Well, look at how small mine is compared to that guy over there. I'm doing pretty good. I've shrunk it by 30% over my lifetime. All the while, never dealing with, with that mountain of ice below. Interesting, that scene from above, that's God's view. God, God sees us in our totality, not just what's on the surface, but he sees, he sees all of us. I must not be doing a very good job, because I'm afraid some of you still don't believe me. I think some in here might be thinking, I've gone from iceberg status, Dave, though, to ice cube status. I'm doing really, really well. Let me, let me give you an assignment. Okay, sometimes assignments work um, well to kind, of, uh, to kind of help us along. We'll call this the, the tongue assignment. How about for one week you try not doing these things? Okay, these all relate to the tongue. For one week, don't gossip. Don't spread a bad report about someone. For one week, don't complain. For one week, don't criticize or boast. For one week, don't blame shift. You know what that is? That's this. It wasn't my fault. For one week, don't defend yourself. And for one week, don't deceive others. Even a tiny bit. And all the parents in the room said, Amen! And all the kids in the room said, Amen! Right? We would love it if in our households none of this went on even for a week. Here's my question to you. How long do you think you could hold this up? I'd love to have next week you come and let me know how this goes. I'd love it. Now, to the person who comes uh, next week and says, nailed it, they've just broken two of them, right? The first one's boasting, done. The second one is they're deceiving me, right? So they've already failed if they said that. Listen to what, to what Jesus said in Matthew 12. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Now, that's just our tongue. That's just our tongue. Cursing, cursed, rule breaker, one link and we fail. You know what Paul was? Paul was one of these mice right here on the wheel. Paul was writing as one who had experienced trying harder. And he was exhausted. Here's what he says in Romans 7, 21. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Anyone with Paul on that? I am. Listen to what he says then about the chain, about the law of God. I love God's law with all my heart. 
But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. The power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Paul Paul was done covering up. He knew. He knew there was at least one link missing, broken. And he asked the right question. Who? Who will free me? I think people spend years and years of their life asking the wrong question. What brings me freedom? What brings me happiness? Paul asked the right question. Who? And he goes on to answer himself in verse 25. He says this. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Enter the substitute. How can one who is cursed have a blessing pronounced on them? We sang this morning about about blessing. We're going to sing some more about that. It's by a substitute. Christ died for us. His death was in our place and totally for our benefit. I could give you 25 scriptures right now. I've just whittled it down to a couple because I want you to see this theme that just drums home over and over and over again in the Bible. And not just the New Testament. Look at Isaiah 53.5. But he was wounded for, there's the word, our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Do you hear the substitution language? Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. Romans 4, he was delivered up for our trespasses. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And now honing in on our passage this morning, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, there's our word, for us. He's the substitute. Christ died, and what does it have to do with me? It has everything to do with me, because I'm in that sinner camp, and I needed a substitute to get the blessing. The sinless Jesus literally stood in our place to suffer and die for us. If you've ever been confused as to why would people around the whole world celebrate the murder of Jesus as a good thing, this is the answer right here. We get this. We understand that him doing that and doing that willingly is in place of us taking the punishment for our sin upon sin upon sin. And he absorbed the wrath of God by becoming the curse for us. You know what the result of the substitute is? It's Christmas. How many are looking forward to Christmas? Let me see a raise of hands. Absolutely. Lindsay, yours was the first hand up. Man, my daughter keeps saying, she goes, I can't stop talking about it. I can't wait for Jesus' birthday. And she was wondering yesterday why we never make cookies for Jesus on his birthday. So that might be a new tradition in our household. I am looking forward to Christmas. The result of the substitute, literally, if you have your head on straight and your thinking straight, is Christmas every day. Because God sent his son on a rescue mission for us, the very thing we celebrate at Christmas time, right? The birth of Christ. We now get to be in right relationship to God. And that opens up a whole new way of life for us. 
every single day. The blessing, the gift of being in right relationship with God, kind of comes in two parts. The first part is that we're dead to sin. We're dead to, we're dead to trying to keep this. And then when we do, kind of covering up. What changed? What are you talking about? And we try to cover up the fact that our chain isn't complete. So we're dead to sin and we're alive to God. Let me just take these really quick and we, we kind of wrap up with this. Dead to sin. In Christ, you're not only free from the penalty of sin. We talked about that last week. You're set free from that, but also from the power of sin. Being set free from the power of sin gives you hope for the rest of the day. Being set free from the power of sin is what makes people say, man, that guy, that gal used to be characterized by selfishness and in its place is generosity pouring out of this person. I can't make heads or tails of it. That's being freed from not just the penalty, but the power. Look at Romans chapter 7. This is kind of the extended dance remix for this passage, Romans 7. Starting in verse 4, it says this. This is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. Remember last week or a couple weeks ago to Galatians 2.20? I've been crucified with Christ. When that happened, you became dead to sin. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. He goes on to say this. Now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Do you see how short-sighted it is to trust in Jesus so that you can get a new car? To trust in Jesus so that you'll get a new friend? To trust in Jesus to overcome your addiction or your guilt or your loneliness? That's basically trusting in Jesus for next week. That's a little bit like someone who is saying, um, hey, I'm fixing up the iceberg this year. I've got some recessed lighting ordered to make this place look really, really nice. You're still on an iceberg, right? That's just kind of dressing up without dealing with your situation. The curse is so much worse than we often make it out to be. And the blessing extends. It has this reach so far beyond next week. I'm a pastor. I have this deep sense that I should be getting this better. But here's my confession. So often I look for the blessing next week. So often I get duped into thinking, wow, this is a really good day because of circumstances that are going on. And not pulling back and seeing the big picture of what's, of what's really going on. Dead to sin, but also alive to God. You know what Jesus doesn't offer us? He doesn't come in and offer us um, power to get all the rules right. He doesn't come in and say, okay, now, as a Christian, you're going to get all the rules right, all the time. Instead, what he does, he comes and he offers us life. Listen to John chapter 7. It says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day. So this is, um, just imagine a Christmas celebration where like the whole town is out. Jesus stands up with a loud voice and here's what he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures, uh, scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus wants to make this pronouncement to many rule followers, by the way, who wanted to, to, to take his life. And the pronouncement that he gives is this, not more rules to follow, but a spirit to guide them into life. Streams of living water. Now, if you notice something about Christians, you notice this. Once they become a Christian, they still care deeply about their actions. They still care deeply about how they're living their life. But there's a fundamental difference that goes on. All of a sudden, it's motivated and done in freedom and joy. And not somehow trying to outweigh the bad. Not somehow forever trying to catch up on the debt that we have. Why do Christians still care about their deeds? Because God created us for good deeds. He bears in us good fruit. So we care deeply about our holiness. We want to we want to live just like Jesus did, but it's motivated from something totally different. Catch this, 600 years before Jesus was even born, okay? A new dawn was being predicted through a prophet. Ezekiel says this, "And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. <laughs> and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see how right living and right thinking and right walking doesn't go out the window, but all of a sudden it's in a whole new different way? It's the difference between have to and get to. Now, some of you um, who are into this have looked under the Christmas tree and you were, you've been eyeing this snowboard here. Let me dispel the rumor. This isn't being given away today. Okay? Um, I have a lot of children, and so I need to keep every snowboard that we have. Now, when I hold this up, I'm actually, I actually know personally of a couple of people who are salivating right now, and I've probably lost them for the rest of the message because they're thinking now about snowboarding. Okay? They're thinking about their board. They're remembering trips and all of that. When I hold this snowboard up, um, some of you in this room have tried this sport, and you're like me. You love it. You love everything about it. It's super fun to you. Others of you in this room have tried this sport, and you're a lot more like my dad. My dad viewed, uh, he never got quite got to snowboarding, but skiing, okay, children, Google it. It's a different sport, similar he was skiing, and he would say, it's just work, and I couldn't understand that. I'd say, Dad, why don't you love to do it? And he goes, it just feels like work to me. Now, is it inconvenient to snowboard? You have to wake up super early. If you live around here, you have to drive super far. You have to pay a lot of money for gear and getting up the mountain. You get really, really cold. You get a sore bum and sore wrists and a broken head. All of that goes on with snowboarding. Is that inconvenient? Yeah. But you can still love it, right? 
Right now, if you said, Dave, tomorrow morning, let's wake up at 4 and go snowboarding. If you told me there was snow and it was worth it, I'd be all over that. I'd say, absolutely. And I would do it joyfully. It's because I get to go snowboarding versus my dad who would have to go snowboarding or skiing because he wanted to bless his kids or whatever else. Now, I can't, I can't really distinguish between my dad and I. I don't know the nuances of why he does and, he, and I do and this and that. I said the same thing. You get it. Um, but I can distinguish between two worshipers. The worshiper who has to be here is under law. They're still under the curse. They're still weighing the, I've done some bad things, I better do some good things, curse. The one who gets to worships God out from under the law and now is under the umbrella, the covering of grace. And there's a whole different mindset. Here's my question for you this morning. Do you have to be here or do you get to be here? Do you have to read your Bible this week or do you get to read your Bible this week? Do you have to pray, share, give, go to community group, bless people? Is that a have to or is that a get to? <clears throat> Titus 2.14. If you're taking notes, just jot it down. He gave his life. The substitute. Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. We're dead to sin. To cleanse us and to make us his very own people. We're alive to God. And he wraps up this way, totally committed to doing good deeds. Let's talk about moving forward for a moment. Some of you in this room might be tired. Paul's word to the morally frustrated is this. Get off that road of trying harder. Get off it. It's a dead end. It doesn't lead anywhere. Celebrate the new life that you have. Celebrate this power that you get to walk in. Come back together with other people who live light and free under grace and remember it and talk about it and remind each other of it. Smile about it. Go share a meal and discuss it. Don't let this idea, don't let this reality ever leave your mind or your tongue for very long. Paul knew from personal experience. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. <clears throat> for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, there's so many in this room who have testimony to say, that's me. My life was once heavy and weighed down. It's now light and burden-free. It's not easy. It doesn't mean I don't have any troubles. But man, I'll, it'll never, ever be the same because I'm walking under grace. Maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you've made a personal commitment to Jesus and you say, that's already me. If that's already you, but you're concerned, you're concerned about someone else who's on the wheel. They're not moving forward in their life. They're stuck in a cycle. Maybe you're asking this question, who in my life desperately needs to know that salvation is a gift 
and can't be earned. When we read the Gospels, we read about Jesus who kind of goes around the countryside. And you know what he's doing? He's wooing mice off of the wheel with some cheese. He just gives them kind of a little taste of something way better. And just, and just by his kindness, he draws people away from that. There's so much more than a little chunk of cheese, but that's how Jesus did it. Listen, listen to Matthew chapter 9. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now catch this. That was his ministry. That's a good summation of just his life and what he went about doing. Verse 37 says this, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus' prescription for those who would be concerned about mice on a wheel who have no understanding that salvation is a gift and can't be earned, his prescription isn't live a better life. Live such a perfect, holy life that everyone will see you and want to be just like you. It wasn't do more church things. It wasn't start more ministries. It wasn't uh, anything else but this. It was pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Are you deeply concerned about your family members? Are you deeply concerned about your neighbors? Has God put a burden on people around you such that you see them as harassed and helpless, kind of like sheep without a shepherd? That's Christ in you. The prescription is this, pray earnestly. There's an urgency to this. We are collectively as a church going to start or have an opportunity to continue in this um, Wednesdays in December. So starting this coming Wednesday, since we're now in December, at 7 o'clock for one hour in this building, we will as a church pray earnestly to the Lord of the Harvest. I mentioned last week, we've got four services coming up that are very specifically targeted for Christmas and just to celebrate the gospel. But we're not putting all of our eggs in thinking, let's just get that perfect. Instead, we're putting all of our eggs in the basket of saying, God, if you don't do a work in this, all of this is silly religious nonsense. Would you show up in power and rescue people who desperately need you? So, we're going to pray along those lines. I want to invite the band up right now. As you are going around the city in the next few weeks, I want you to listen for something. Much of the music right now, all through the city, has these ancient truths built into them. They're talking about blessing, and they're talking about cursing, and they're talking about rescue and freedom. This week, the oldest published book in America was sold for more than $14 million. It was a book of the Psalms printed by Puritan settlers in 1640. $14 million. That's a lot of money for a book. Reminded me of Psalm 19. 
The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Maybe the guy who bought it was a Christian and took that literally and said, here's a bunch of fine gold for this book of Psalms. Isaac Watts believed it. He's a hymn writer. Many of our greatest hymns came from Isaac Watts. He believed it so deeply that music and poetry flowed out of him. One of his all-time best-known hits is still being sung today. And it centers off one of the Psalms, Psalm 98. In fact, this next song we're going to sing is uh, Joy to the World. And in one of the verses, he says this. He comes to make his blessings flow. Know the next line? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Jesus, we thank you for coming to us. We thank you for raising our view of what it is to be a substitute. Once for all time. And Jesus, as a Christian this morning, I just state publicly, I think for the, perhaps the vast majority in this room, that we want to say out loud that our trust is in you, that we rest wholly in your finished work this morning. And that does spring in us joy that has to come out. God, as we sing this, help it not to just be an old Christmas tune, but God, I pray that we could worship you right now with these words from Psalm 98 that we're about to sing. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.